0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode of Homestead on the Corner was brought to you by our supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, then please go to patreon.com slash Corner. For as little as $1 a month, you get early access to all new episodes, a special patron-only podcast, and exclusive behind-the-scenes content. Good morning, everyone. This is Trevor Van Winkle, and you're listening to... Homestead on the corner. of time and space everything that ever happened or ever will where do you want to start the 11th hour doctor who it's only fitting that this line was spoken at the end of the 11th doctor's first episode his era more than any other in the show's history was a science fiction fairy tale and this wonderful statement of intent embodies the sense of wonder and possibility in the world of fantasy In fairy tales, there could be anything out there, beyond the forest, outside the house, through the wardrobe, and down the well. And sometimes, as in the case of Doctor Who, everything is out there. All of time and space, with hundreds of worlds that range from whimsical to downright terrifying. Also, I told you I wasn't done quoting Doctor Who. Not by a long shot. In Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces, he says, quote, Having traversed the threshold, the hero moves in a dream landscape of curiously fluid, ambiguous forms, where he must survive a succession of trials. End quote. Your hero, who doesn't have to be a he, but could be a he, she, they, z, or other, leaves the ordinary and familiar world behind when they cross the first threshold, as we discussed in Lesson 16. They make an active, determined choice to leave what they've always known behind, and the door locks shut behind them. Beyond this point, they're in the realm of the unknown. There's a new set of rules to learn, new powers to contend with, and new tools to master. It's a world of uncertainty, wonder, and ambiguity, where everything they think they know is turned upside down, given a shake, and spilled back out in a new configuration. It's more dangerous, too, in the ordinary world, the protagonist always had a fallback plan, a safety net of some kind that would catch them if they slipped up. Here, they're on the ledge, and even if their allies catch their fall, one bad step could always send them toppling to their doom. The kitty gloves are off as this world begins to test your protagonist, pushing them beyond their limits until they learn the lesson they need in order to defeat the antagonist and restore balance to their world. Today, we're going to investigate this extraordinary world, How to separate it from the story world of your first act, develop its unique identity, and make it a compelling reflection of your story's premise. Get out the work gloves and power tools everyone, we're world building again. When building both the ordinary and extraordinary worlds of your story, everything we discussed in episode 10 still applies. World building is largely an exercise in research, choice of focus, and imagination, and is something you do in every story, not just the ones that take place in an entirely invented universe. While fantasy, sci-fi, and adventure are the genres that most clearly have the protagonist physically leave their ordinary world for a new and unknown place, crossing into a new world is a vital step in every story even stories that take place in a single location. The only difference in that case is that instead of leaving for a new time and place, the rules change, the mood shifts, and the stakes are raised within the same setting. For instance, the film 12 Angry Men takes place almost entirely in a single room, where a group of anonymous jurors debate whether to condemn a young man to death. Besides a brief prologue and epilogue that frame the story, almost the entire 90-minute runtime takes place in that one room, While it might seem like the transition from the courtroom could be the start of the second act, it is really the initial argument of Juror 8 and the collection of the secret ballot that marks the transition into the extraordinary world. Juror 9, the closest thing to a protagonist the film has, makes a definitive choice by voting not guilty on his secret ballot, crossing the threshold from the thesis, the boy is guilty, to the world of the antithesis, the boy deserves a fair chance. The rest of the film has the antagonist, juror 8, slowly convincing the rest of the jurors to his side until they come to the synthesis. The boy is not guilty. Twelve Angry Men, despite taking place in one location with a fixed set of characters, is in some ways one of the best examples of the function of the extraordinary world, if not its usual form. The dialectical structure of story, as stated by Lajos Egri in The Art of Dramatic Writing, is, quote, First, statement of the proposition called thesis then the discovery of a contradiction to this proposition called antithesis being the opposite of the original proposition and formulation of a third proposition the synthesis being a combination of the original proposition and the contradiction to it quote. the ordinary world of your story is a representation of your thesis expressed as all things are in story through character and plot for instance, the thesis of Worlds Apart is represented by Andromeda Station, the place where Dr. Llewellyn feels safe and secure in self isolation. Thesis Being alone is more efficient and easier than working with others. The extraordinary world comes in when she decides to collaborate with Utkin to re establish contact with the outside world. Antithesis We need the help of others in times of need. And finally, when threatened with losing Utkin forever, she enters the world of the Synthesis. Our connection with others makes life worth living. She passes through three different story worlds as her worldview slowly evolves, all while being physically incapable of leaving the original location. Now this function only becomes clearer in stories with more explicit threshold crossings. In The Silver Age, Lara Lynn's ordinary world is her marriage to Ada, and Job as an investigative journalist. More than that, it’s her unfounded, unexamined optimism about the world. Thesis: The world is a safe place and I trust it. Then she loses her wife, blames it on the superhero who failed to rescue her, and sets out to destroy him. Antithesis: The world is cruel, so I’m going to hurt it back. And finally, after she kills Silverman and realizes her mistake, she struggles with the consequences of her action and finally comes to the synthesis. That life is pain and loss and heartbreak from the day we're born to the day we die. But it's also hope. So long as we're alive, there's still a chance to change. To choose a different path. To help others and make life a little less terrible. These threshold transitions are also shown physically, as well as mentally. The first is the transition from her home to the abandoned office building where she intends to kill Silver, and the second in the transition from that office to the pain apartment, and then prison. In each crossing, she makes a definitive choice, first to kill Silver, and then to turn herself in. On a related side note, having your protagonist make the decision to cross the threshold themselves is a vital step in making them into an active protagonist rather than a passive one. A passive protagonist is a victim of their circumstances who just goes along with whatever happens to them. Oftentimes, this makes the story feel like it's not really about them, but what's happening to them. About plot rather than character. This will kill a reader's sense of engagement and empathy fairly quickly, typically either at or before the midpoint, when their lack of positive action becomes irritatingly apparent. Come on, the reader says, mentally nudging the protagonist forward with a stick. Do something! On the other hand, if the protagonist actively makes the choice to cross the threshold into the unknown, then the audience's tolerance for things just happening to them is usually higher. Though, as a general rule, they should still be the second most active player in the story, determining which way to go and what actions to take. The most active player, at least at the start, is the antagonist, but that's primarily because they're more powerful and already moving when the story begins. Let's get back to the purpose of the extraordinary world. It's the antithesis of the moral argument in your story's premise, expressed in plot and character. As stated in Lesson 11, your premise is a concise statement of the values that you want to argue for and against in your narrative. Values in conflict, a moral argument, and, if possible, some element of irony or paradox. The premise is the idea that you build your narrative around, the beating heart of your story which guides every creative decision you make and it is the moral argument that contains the seeds of both your ordinary and extraordinary worlds. For instance, in the 12 Angry Men example, the moral argument might be summarized as, true justice is only found when we overcome our prejudices and assumptions and see the world with openness and clarity. Prejudices and assumptions serve as the thesis, the world in which all the characters except juror eight begin. Openness and clarity are the antithesis, The new worldview that Juror 8 slowly brings into being. When it overcomes the thesis, then the synthesis, true justice, is achieved. But the divide between the ordinary and extraordinary world is often much more complicated than this, especially in fantasy and sci-fi settings. The same basic principle can still be applied, however, at least on a thematic level. The extraordinary world represents something that the protagonist lacks but isn't fully ready to accept, so they are sent into another realm to learn the lessons they need in order to grow and change. Frodo Baggins needs to leave his comfortable, upper-class existence and learn to sacrifice for the good of others in order to save the world. For this reason, he's sent into a wild, dangerous land full of rugged adventurers, crownless kings and sacrificial death and rebirth. Although he fails to give up the ring in the end, and Gollum ends up accidentally destroying it, along with himself, when Frodo returns to the Shire he now represents a Synthesis, with himself and the other members of the Fellowship riding home in the armor and regalia of the larger world. However, we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit, and that final threshold is still a long way off. For now, know that your second act should take place in the extraordinary world of the Antithesis. An upside-down reflection of the Act 1 thesis, where down is up, left is right, and the impossible is possible. Or, rather, up is up, right is right, and what was always possible can now be seen. What was really upside-down was the ordinary world, and the lie the protagonist believed because of it. Crossing a threshold, physical or otherwise, is simply using the tools of storytelling to show the first step of the protagonist's initial journey from ignorance to enlightenment. But, enough about the philosophical function of the Extraordinary World, let's get to the fun part. Let's get building! Extraordinary Worlds are probably the most fun part of reading or writing any story. For me, I can think of a few dozen favorites off the top of my head, largely thanks to all the fantasy and sci-fi I read, watch, and listen to. Oz, Narnia, Middle-earth, The Death Star, Dagobah, Cloud City, Andor, Arrakis, The Grid from Tron, Hogwarts, The University from the Name of the Wind, The Veil's Castle in Heaven Sent, Mars and the Martian, and many, many more. <sighs> I could ask what they all have in common from a world building perspective, but in terms of their actual construction, there isn't a meaningful thread that runs between all of them. There's no formula for building these worlds. There are some similarities between them, but they are dwarfed in both quantity and quality by the differences. In fact, if there's one thing that unites all these different worlds, it's that they are all decidedly different. One of my favorite things about fiction podcasts is the worlds that are created through the use of fairly minimal elements. A few characters, a couple of voices, and a handful of details paint an indistinct, almost dreamlike picture of the world in your mind. For example, the world of the bridge, despite only featuring four main characters who never leave a single location, feels complete and solid, yet nebulous, like a feeling you could walk around in. The sense of isolation, and the comradeship that only comes when you're alone with the same group of people for a long time, creates a strong emotional tenor, while the supernatural element gets under your skin and gives the show a constant sense of wonder and menace. The same is true with Wolf 359, The Magnus Archives, and Ars Paradoxica, along with many, many others. Each has a unique sound, feel, and structure that brings you into a world you can't see, yet feels as real as our own while you're in it. Why is this? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Internal consistency, attention to and careful selection of details, and artistic skill in presenting all play a huge role in creating any story world, but especially the world of the second act. Because we'll be spending most of the narrative in it, it's important to make sure it feels real. Not only to us, the writer, but to the reader. This is one of the many reasons why Star Wars became the first multimedia mega-franchise in Hollywood history. Its world felt lived in and humanized, packed with so many fascinating details and weird, wonderful characters that it became a seemingly bottomless well of fresh stories. Which is why it's so frustrating that 90% of the movies revolve around a new version of the Death Star. But even so, that galaxy far, far away keeps capturing our imaginations. The Mandalorian is literally the story of a single background bounty hunter just doing his day job and getting into a galaxy-spanning adventure because of it and it's some of the best Star Wars content in years. By the end of your story, the extraordinary world should feel layered and complete enough that you could walk around in it for days and never run into any invisible walls or blank spots. Here's a fun world building exercise. Picture yourself somewhere within the story world. Then just pick a direction and start walking. Visualize what the space looks like, making note of anything you haven't fully thought through Mentally stare at that blank spot until you figure out what should be there. The storytelling imagination is a wonderful thing, and if you've done the hard work of fully developing your premise, characters, and setting, you should quickly find the link between what is and isn't there, and fill in the blank. Then keep going. Out the door or down the street, paying attention not only to what you visualize, but why you see it that way. This is a great way to not only check your story world for cracks, but examine any shortcuts you might have taken in creating it. If, for example, your setting is a spaceship, you may wander around for a bit before realizing you've accidentally set your story in Serenity or BS 75, just with a different name and a slightly different paint job. If your story is an intentional homage or pastiche, that might be okay, but just make sure your setting fits your premise rather than the premise of those shows. A mismatch between your premise and your story world leads to a fundamental disconnect between what your story is saying and how it's saying it. For instance, if your story is about a utopic future free from material want, having your spaceship look like it's halfway falling apart might not be the best choice, no matter how much you want to recreate the aesthetic of Firefly. If you're more artistically inclined, then you can draw parts of your story world or build a physical or digital model of your main setting. I've been having a lot of fun with the program Stud.io over the last week or so, designing and building LEGO replicas of key settings from Homestead on the Corner and the Sheridan tapes. Even though I was really just burning time, it led to several discoveries that allow me to further develop the story worlds for future installments. Especially in a non-visual medium like podcasting or short stories, it can be extremely helpful to liven up your descriptions and storytelling with new details. By creating your own visual representations of the setting, you can more easily pinpoint the blank spots and find out new things about the setting, the wider world, and even the characters themselves. Remember, story, plot, and character are not separate, but part of the same fundamental substance. Strengthening your story world, especially in the second act, will reveal new insights into the mechanics of your plot and the background of your characters. This is a helpful technique, but it's far from the only one, especially if you're not confident with drawing or building. In that case, a few pages of free association writing about your setting can also be extremely enlightening. As in the Star Wars example, taking a moment to look at specific details and figuring out where they came from can often result in powerful revelations about the background and history of your world, facts that can then be used to enrich the main story. A large part of creative writing is finding those connections and presenting them to the reader or audience in an organic way. But, whichever technique you use, remember what the purpose of your extraordinary world is, to show the antithesis of your story in a compelling way, rather than blankly telling it to the reader. It's a part of the moral argument of your story, presented through character and plot in a way that is entertaining and imaginative. While the story world itself sometimes goes on to dwarf the original narrative, It should always be kept in service to story, first and foremost." Thank you for listening to this episode of Homestead on the Corner. Today's exploration of the extraordinary world was written and produced by Trevor Van Winkle and featured music from Lauren Baker and Jesse Hogan. Speaking of new worlds, our brand new fiction podcast, The Sheridan Tapes, is now live on all podcasting platforms. To find out where to listen to it, head over to thesheridantapes.com for show links and more info. In the meantime, Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Trevor underscore VW for updates on both shows and check out patreon.com slash homestead corner if you want to support our little production team. Next episode, we've talked about them plenty, but now it's time to meet the antagonist and learn who they are what they represent, and how to make them an interesting character. New episodes of this podcast release every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Well, that's about all for now. From the homestead on the corner, have a great day, and keep writing.